Hello, so we've come to the end of the year now and that seems a pretty good time to actually end this first season of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast and take a little short break for both me and Matt, my editor. We've had lots of great feedback on the podcast and so I know people have been enjoying them and I've been enjoying doing them as well. So don't worry, we will be back in the new year and I've already got a number of guests lined up. Talking of feedback, to help get the podcast out to other survivors, lifesavers and others affected by a sudden cardiac arrest, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate and leave a review where you can. Typically this would be on the Apple podcast site, used to be called iTunes, Or if you don't use an Apple service, try stitcher.com, that's S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R.com, or Podchaser. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a positive review. I'd just like to say thanks to all of those who have appeared on the previous episodes. We're now at episode 30, so that's uh, probably over 30 hours of help, I hope. So I'd just like to say a massive thanks to my editor, Matt Nielsen, and he's an Australian in London and he's doing an absolutely fantastic job for us because we've had lots of nice comments about the great audio quality. So thanks very much, Matt. And he's managed to achieve that all for free and also despite having his laptop stolen about a month ago. So a great job. And that brings me round to today's episode with Professor Douglas Chamberlain. I must say it was an absolutely great chat and a real honour to be able to to speak with someone like um, Professor Douglas. And he's 88 years young but still working and still got a great sharp mind. And we talked for over two hours but and it could have easily been more. And he's a he's a real hero, I think, not only to me but to, to many who's been saved by the tools and techniques that he's taught paramedics and CFRs across the country and across Europe. But he's also very humble and uh, quite humorous chap as well. And although he's won many awards and honours, I couldn't help thinking that he's perhaps deserving a higher honour such as the knighthood. So I don't know if that's something after you've listened to this podcast, maybe we want to get together and see if we can do something for him. I hope you enjoyed the series and I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll catch you next time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today's guest can be described as a world-famous cardiologist His contribution to the medical profession in general and to pre-hospital clinical care in particular is unrivaled. His achievements set in motion the paramedic profession, the concept of CFRs and publicly accessible defibrillators, ultimately saving thousands of lives, including mine. He has received numerous awards and honours, including a CBE, and I am honoured to introduce to you Professor Douglas Chamberlain. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you very much, Paul. I feel um, perhaps uh, that you've overstated it, but still, thank you very much anyway.
Uh, I don't think I have. When I was li- doing a little bit of research on on your background, I found many accolades, and that was that was just one of the many. My first question to you would be, why did you decide to become a doctor? Oh, that is very interesting. I was aged four, and I was taken by my mother to the doctor's surgery. And in the waiting room, in the corner, was a human skull. I don't think you'd find that these days. And the human skull had on it a trilby hat, and there was a cigarette holder in in the mouth, and there was a cigarette in the cigarette holder that I think was a a brand we used to call Craven A because it had a, a brown filter there. And I said to my mother, asked her what it was, and she told me, and I said, I want one of those. And my mother said, well, you can, but you'll have to become a doctor first. So I said, all right, I'll become a doctor. And that was it. And I never, ever thought to change my mind. <laughs> it makes me laugh, really. I mean, it was a different era back then. I think they possibly pushed cigarettes as being a benefit to your health back then, didn't they? Oh, they did. There were adverts at that time. Um, your doctor recommends Craven A. It wasn't until about 1955 that the real problem of smoking became widely accepted. Uh-huh. So, so what? when was that that you were for? What year? Yeah. 1935. Goodness. So that, that sort of uh, puts it into perspective. They were very troubled times back then, or difficult times, I imagine, to, to grow up and have ambitions. And so what was your, your sort of family situation like? Was it was something like a four-year-old saying, I want to become a doctor? Was that a realistic proposition? Well, at that time, in many ways, weren't as difficult as they are now. My father, actually, was a coal merchant, and he started life in those days. He had a horse and cart, and walking through the streets of Cardiff, where I was born, shouting, coal, coal. He later, his business grew and it became a little bit more sophisticated, but that was a background. There was no medical influence in the background except for the fact that I'd seen that skull. Uh So how did you get from from that idea or thought or or dream, if you like, to to actually becoming a doctor? Well, first of all, of course, um, I went to school in Cardiff. I was caned twice every day because I could not read, and I I couldn't read, I couldn't spell. I had severe dyslexia, but nobody at that time had discovered dyslexia. So I had a pretty miserable time. I remember an examination paper being stuck up on the wall with naught out of a hundred on it. So those were slightly difficult times. Then I was sent away to school because I was lazy. That was the that was what people said. When I went away to school, there was a very, very fierce English teacher. And he said to me the first time I met him, he said, there's something the matter with you. I, I, I want you to know it is not your fault. 
after which he could not have been more helpful and patient. Even though dyslexia hadn't been described, he recognised that there was a problem that I couldn't control. And I wouldn't, wouldn't have got anywhere without his help at that time, which is, I think, really quite a thought. I was, yeah, it was quite insightful of him back then to be able to recognise that yes. it, it wasn't something that you you weren't lazy. <laughs> yes, other people had red, his red pen scrawling this way and that. I only had a little tiny dot under things that he didn't think were quite right. He could not have been kinder. That was very, very helpful. That sounds like a quite a contrast to your previous experience of education. Then the next thing was getting to university. I, I was averagely bright, nothing exceptional. But the time when I was going to go to university in 1950, Cambridge, where I went, they were just going to take people straight from school the following year when the applications went in. But very few people knew that. So there are only five applications to my college in Cambridge. And we all got in. My interview was very brief. I was interviewed by a pair of boots, by which I mean the man taking the interview had his feet on the desk. He had a newspaper in front of him. It was a copy of the Times, which in those days had only adverts on the front page. He never took the paper down. I never saw his face. He never saw mine. He just said to me, what is your name, boy? I wasn't even invited to sit down, actually. What is your name, boy? I told him my name. And again, without taking the paper down, he said, if you can get your high school certificate, you can have a place. I said, thank you, and left. That (laughs) That sounds quite bizarre. (laughs) That is how I got into Cambridge. Um, was, it, was it usual for uh, a boy from Cardiff, to, or a son of a coal merchant, to go to um, Cambridge back then? Well, you see, mostly there are people, nearly all the people there, were people who come uh, just come out of the army. Many of them have served during the war, and one didn't know very much about their backgrounds, apart from the fact they'd been in the army. So anyway, I, I got to Cambridge. I was very pleased because... Modest though I be, I think I can say that I was one of the world's greatest oarsmen. I loved rowing. Now, rowing at Cambridge was every afternoon. Unfortunately, anatomy was taught every afternoon. There was no choice. I rowed every afternoon, and so I never learned anatomy. I I did have an idea that before the exam, I could mug it all up in... in, There were three books on anatomy that I got hold of, and I thought I could learn it all in two or three weeks. And then I found it was utterly impossible. I went to the examination, and this is absolutely true. I went to the examination. It was a three-hour exam, probably the most miserable three hours I've ever spent. I wrote one and a half lines in that three hours, apart from copying out the questions. To be seen writing something, I copied out all the questions. Apart from that, only one and a half lines that may may or may not have been nonsense, I don't know. So I knew I had failed. When the results came out, 
my friend who, with whom I shared a room at Cambridge went off to see how he'd got on. No point my going. He came back. How did you get on, Gerald? I passed. So did you. No, I can't have passed. I went off to the Senate House and I looked and there was my name. Now, the following day we had to be interviewed by our tutor. The tutor at Cambridge was not somebody who taught you, but just looked after your well-being. And he looked at my marks. He said, you did very well in physiology. You did very well in pathology, not badly in biochemistry. Your mark in anatomy is actually the worst I've ever seen. And it should be a fail. But for some reason, they have put P beside it for pass. And I told him the story. And he said, in that case, the less we look into this, the better. So I passed. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite bizarre, isn't it? It is quite bizarre. There is another little bit to that story I could tell you if you want me to. Absolutely. Well, when it came, I'd now finished at Cambridge. I'd now gone to London, St. Bartholomew's Hospital, to do my clinical work. But part of the very final examination, there was a 10-minute oral examination in what they call surgical anatomy. And I thought it would be about surgical things, but the examiners asked me question after question about ordinary anatomy. And at the end of the 20 minutes, 10 minutes one examiner, 10 minutes the other, one examiner said to me, we've been asking you questions for 20 minutes and you have not been able to answer a single one. No, I said, I'm sorry. And then he said, are you any relation of my good friend? And he mentioned a name which ended in Chamberlain. Chamberlain was the surname. And I spoke the truth. I said, no, sir. I will never know whether he misheard me or whether he decided to ignore that because he stood up, held out his hand, and we shook hands, and I passed again. <laughs> Rather fortuitous, isn't it? Yeah, so there we are. I was now I was now through, and I could now go to Cambridge. Uh, I could now go to... Uh, and do my clinical work, and that was all fine. Can, can I just stop you there? How did you actually manage to do the studies, or most of your studies, with dyslexia? Is it, was that a challenge in itself? Sounds like it would be. Yeah, yes, it, it, it was a challenge, but you may or may not know that, on average, people with dyslexia do have a higher IQ than those without. There's, of course, a scatter, but the scatter is higher for people with dyslexia. So that does help. My son, for example, has very severe dyslexia, but he too did very well eventually when people came to understand that the people can have quite a high IQ and they can overcome the problems. I still have problems. When uh, I, 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 I can't spell, if I'm writing anything, I send it to my secretary who corrects the spelling. But my grammar is perfect. I think my grammar is better than anybody else's in all the world. 
and uh, it pains me when I hear people making grammatical errors, which is every day. Yes, especially today with computers and people get lazier and lazier using abbreviations and things like that, and probably probably the grammar's being dumped, dumbed down to a certain degree. That's right. People uh, were not taught grammar in school for many years. So, so you've gone through your education and you've come out shining honours, and you're are you essentially now a doctor? Well, I got my MD. When you, you qualify your MBBS, I that an ordinary qualification. People call you doctor as a sort of courtesy, but I did get my doctor of medicine, so I am, if you like, a proper doctor. I recall once uh, on the telephone uh, talking to the people, if you wanted, you, you, people would actually talk to you on the telephone. I don't mean, I, I mean, at, at the, the telephone company. And I said I was a doctor, and she said, Are you a proper doctor or just a, or, or just a medical doctor? And I enjoyed saying both. So, <laughs> so I did. I did get my MMD, MD, but one of the problems now is that I'm not able to practice as a doctor in this country because after several scandals of um, bad doctors, uh, it you, you had to actually um, be a member of a university with all sorts of. Uh, conditions that I, by that time, I'd retired and I could not meet. So although I'm I'm registered as a doctor, I can't practice in the United Kingdom. However, if I go to Europe, I can practice. So maybe that's a, a future career for you, a European, European doctor. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think I'm quite happy as I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so, once you've qualified as a doctor, had you any thoughts about where that was going to take you? Uh, yes. At medical school, there there was a neurologist who was absolutely wonderful. This is St. Bartholomew's Hospital. He was wonderful, and I wanted to become a neurologist because he had so inspired me. I then did one or two other things. I spent a year in the States. I then was in the army, keeping the Russians away. And when I was coming out of the army, I needed to get a job quickly. And I did apply for a job in neurology, because this man had told me if I applied, he would make sure that I was appointed. Again, that doesn't happen these days. But the I was a bit concerned. We had children by then, and I, I also applied for a job at the Brompton Hospital in chest disease in case I didn't get the one in neurology. Alas, the one at the Brompton came up the day before. I attended, and I was curious that there were uh, there were only two applicants for this job. I didn't quite understand why. The reason was that the post advertised was working for uh, a man who was absolutely 
well, he was really a bit of a scoundrel. And he'd got the job at Brumpton, having come out of the army during the war. And he was just absolutely terrible. He gave lectures now and again, which were awful. I had to sit in the front row of his lectures. The first lecture I sat through thinking how terrible. The second lecture I sat through, I went, not only did I fall asleep, but I went crashing down onto the floor. He never, ever, 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 ever spoke to me again. So he would address any questions via a junior member of the group, and I had to reply in the same way. After a few weeks of this, I thought, this is terrible. I knew that I'd enjoyed working in cardiology as a medical student, so I rang the cardiologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, not knowing at that time he didn't like receiving phone calls. But when he heard why I was ringing, he laughed and said, come and see me on Monday, I will find you a job. And again, that wouldn't happen these days. I went along on Monday, and he didn't quite know what job I was going to have, but he said he would make me a research fellow, and I could do some research. On what, sir? I've no idea. You have to find something. Goodbye. So there I was. I now had a job, and I was told that I could do some research, but nobody knew what I might do research on. That was an interesting time. I had quite an interesting couple of weeks, really, thinking about that and worrying about it. I will tell you more if you wish. Absolutely. So what year would that be? That would have been in 1950s, hang on, 1960, I think. So what what did I what did I do? Mm-hmm. I, I read some books um, about not about clinical medicine, but about sci- the science of of medical type science, and I found one interesting one on drugs that blocked the adrenaline receptors. And it described, at the, this paper at the very end, said there were two types of receptor, alpha and beta. Now, that wasn't widely known. So I actually decided that I would look into it from a clinical point of view. And I started doing some uh, research and got some interesting results. Without going into much detail, I decided to ring ICI, a big chemical, a big pharmaceutical manufacturer at that time, and say I've been looking into this. And I thought that there was a scope for a type of drug that would block the beta receptor, which wasn't widely available, only to discover that ICI had just produced one and were about to market it. However, the man who had made that discovery, he said, I will come and visit you. And he came down and we got on extremely well and we did a lot of research together He got a Nobel Prize. I didn't get a Nobel Prize, but that didn't matter. (laughs) And that's how I got interested in research. And actually, altogether, 
in my professional life, I have written, been author or co-author of over 300 papers, co-author of many of them, author of some. So Beta Blockade became a a, a major interest. Uh Was that a person? um, That did help me. It didn't help very much in getting a job, however, a consultant post. I was a senior registrar at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. I actually, there are many, many people now applying for jobs. There was a mismatch between the number of people trained and the number of posts available. I applied for 32 posts. I know because a few years ago, I came across my pile of applications. I was actually offered one or two, but when I saw what they were like, I had turned them down, but mostly they had turned me down. So I, a post came up in Brighton. The My chief at Bart's, the one I told you about just now, who was so helpful, he said, go and look at it if you like, but that is a terrible place, and there's no way you should actually apply to go there. I came, there were six hospitals in Brighton at that stage, six general hospitals, and there wasn't even a single ECG machine between them. My predecessor had an ECG machine, but occasionally he would lend it to a hospital. But by and large, they were unable to take electrocardiograms. So was that that piece of equipment, was that relatively new back then? The electrocardiogram... No, it was certainly not new. It was many, many years old. I, without thinking about it, I can't be probably 20 years old or more. So the fact they didn't have an, EC, an ECG machine was quite incredible. Anyway, I decided that I would come. I, I had a conversation with one of the other people. He said, if you come, there are a lot of people here who really would work towards making this a better place. Now, there were, and with a little bit of organisation, not me, but mostly others really, worked hard. I, I, I had an excellent registrar, for example, who came and joined us. Very hard work. In the space of about 10 years, it had come from being a terrible hospital fourth world to just about to become a teaching hospital but that was mostly the work of others Uh, i took some part but i i have i have one great skill whether one should be proud of it or not i do not know i'm very good at riding on the shoulders of others and getting credit that i don't deserve (laughs) i'm sure you're being very humble but I mean, that is a great skill to stand on the shoulders of others, though, because that is how we progress as a society, really. Yes, well, that, that well, that's it. That's, so I did that. So there we are. So, so what, what sort of time frame are we talking about, the, your time at the, the hospital? Uh, well, I left the hospital, let me think, it must have been in 19... 19- 98, I think, probably. When when did you join there again? Sorry, could you just remind me the name of the hospital again? It was the Royal Sussex County Hospital. 
I, 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 I left to go and work for the government. They offered me a job traveling around the world. There, were, there was an American and an East European and myself originally. And we traveled around the world, which was very interesting. As I say, it was for the government. It was, it was, it had its dangers, you know. I, for example, didn't realize when I was working for the government, walking along the, in, in Belfast, along the Falls Road, that very much, of course, a, a, a stronghold of the IRA. I walked all along it wearing my British Army overcoat. And when I got to the hospital where I was going, they asked me where I'd been, and I, I told them, you're wearing that coat, you walked along there, and you're still alive? That's amazing. So, you know, that, exciting things did happen. And, and it, again, for the government, I went to Iraq, and I got arrested by six men with fixed bayonets, and that was quite exciting. But, you know, worries about this after the event at the time, once adrenaline levels are high enough to keep you happy. So I had many interesting, and in Saudi Arabia, I had a lot of interesting times. And what, what, were, and what capacity were you travelling around the world to these trouble spots as? Uh, I, I was, as I say, uh, as a representing the, um, the, the government, and I'm not going to go into any great detail because... What I did do is I signed the Official Secrets Act. I know some very interesting secrets, but you know I'm not going to tell you. If you did tell me, you'd have to kill me. Yes. <laughs> that would be against your Hippocratic Oath, wouldn't it? I don't know about Hippocratic Oath. It would be against the Official Secrets Act anyway. <laughs> so could I just sort of... Uh, stop you there and rewind a little bit just to go back to the when you're doing your research on beta blockers because as we now know many people who've had a cardiac arrest end up on beta blockers and I, I am on those so did you realize at the time that what effect they would have on on cardiac patients I know you said that the, you saw something in the in the research that perhaps indicated that but yes, I, I, I did I did a lot of treadmill testing with treadmills walking people and I learned a lot from that uh, the only thing that I didn't um, appreciate was the the fact that they could be value valuable in the treatment of hypertension but all the other treatments I, I, I did, I, I, I did realise, working with, with ICI and with the wonderful gentleman who got his Nobel Prize. In his... Was that James Black? Sorry? Was that James Black? Yeah, it was Sir James Black, yes. And, uh, Sir James Black in the um, History of Beetle Blockade did, there's, there's a nice page there, he said that he had the credit for discovering beta blockers but if he hadn't published quickly, a registrar at St. Bartholomew's Hospital would have got there first. Uh, and he named my name appears there on the history of beta blockade, which is very kind of James Black. Okay, that's cool. I mean, it's very nice to be um, noted by an, a Nobel Prize winner, isn't it? Yes. And so back to the, the Royal Sussex County Hospital, a number of things, I believe, happened while you were there which we haven't sort of touched on yet and 
The first one, I think, perhaps is, is a comment on a, an article about you. And it was about the, the inception of the cardiology department at that hospital. You talked about the lack of equipment, but I believe there was a sort of a lack of space as well and involved the dining room. Well, there was nothing really. I, I went there, my, my predecessor had an ECG machine, and but that was which he lent occasionally to the hospital. But they, by and large, couldn't take electrocardiograms. On my, my first day there was interesting because I saw a patient who was a doctor and he'd had chest pain and thought he'd had a heart attack. A lady had come round uh, with a little tiny gadget which she pretended was an ECG machine. It was a thing we, we could monitor heart rate with, yes, heart rate. And she applied this and he knew very well that uh, this wasn't an ECG machine, and he demanded to see the cardiologist. That was me, day one. I went to see him, and he told me the whole thing was ridiculous, and he discharged himself and got a taxi all the way from Brighton to Sheffield, and the following day, or a day or two later, there appeared an article in um, a paper in Sheffield which a friend of mine who lived nearby sent me, describing a short, bald, and bespectacled cardiologist who knew nothing about electrocardiograms. So I adopted that phrase, short, bald, and bespectacled. I've actually added something to it since then, short, bald, bespectacled, ugly, old, and lame. And I owe it to this doctor, that short, bald, and bespectacled, in that article he wrote in that Sheffield paper. So so there we are, but we, we did make progress. I had actually, that first day, ordered an ECG machine, which was actually delivered the day after this guy discharged himself. And um, we slowly built up a cardiac department. There were some very good people who were there not doing anything very um, useful at the time, but they had plenty of skill. So uh, we did build up a good department. I think I mentioned it earlier, I got a very good se uh, senior registrar called Richard Vincent, who later was joined me as a consultant, and things went pretty well. We had outpatients once a week. That was interesting because outpatients were from two till five, but I needed more time, so it, they went on. Uh, my patients went on. Our patients went on from one until eight. The two nurses were paid for three hours. They started at one. They stayed until eight, and that went on for nine or ten years, with incredible. But they enjoyed it. We were we worked as a team, and every patient was seen the week that. I had the letter. Patients were warned to bring uh, a book to read and bring a flask of tea. And we had block bookings, so people might have to wait two or three hours, but everybody was seen the same week. And also, I dictated letters in front of the patients and then sent the reports to the patients so they had their own notes. 
all these things wouldn't happen today, but it worked quite well. The patients were very, very cooperative, and it, it worked extremely well. It could not happen now. And I imagine back then the, the sort of the survival rate of serious cardiac events was pretty low, I imagine, wasn't it? Yes, it 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 was low. It was low first of all, let me tell you when I went to Brighton, people with heart attacks were kept at home. If they were diagnosed, they weren't admitted to hospital. The reason is that mortality in hospital was higher than at home. The reason for that was that people in hospital with heart attacks were kept lying flat on their back for the first two weeks. They were in hospital six weeks, flat on their back for the first two weeks, and they were even fed. And it was, I never believed this. Uh, this was what, what I, when I came here, what I found was happening, but this was happening all over the place. And people were dying, of course, from blood pulmonary emboli, from getting blood clot because they were lying still. And it was later somebody did dis discover that. But I always got patients up on day one, up, up and about immediately. And people thought I was a bit mad, but it was, we, we did better than most. But the uh, mortality from heart attacks. Yes, it was high for all sorts of reasons. It was high because the hospital mortality was very high. And then, of course, there were no, they, they weren't taken in quickly. I knew that in Belfast, they'd had an ambulance that went out to the patients to save a bit of time with a doctor on board. So when I arrived here, I... Um, thought that it would be a good idea to have an ambulance going out and but I tried to get that and there was uh, uh, I, I couldn't there was a medical officer of health who said he was in charge of the ambulance um, so what, can I just stop you what what did at that time what was an ambulance and what did an ambulance driver or the personnel who operated the ambulance what what did they actually do yeah, an ambulance driver they merely conveyed patients. That was the point I was coming to. So merely a, a mode of conveyance. So anyway, uh, I had wanted to make it something better than that because in Belfast, they say they had a doctor on the ambulance, but the medical health wouldn't allow it. But I was seeing a patient one day at home. We had things called domiciliary visits. A doctor could uh, GP could ring and ask us to come and visit the patient at home. I used to like that. I used to get to know the patient very well. On this occasion, it was quite clear the patient had had a heart attack. And while I was actually examining him, and I had taken an electrocardiogram too, there was a, a funny sound, and I realized he'd had a cardiac arrest. And his poor widow was there, a widow she remained, it's a sad story, but I asked her to go and dial 999 because I knew that there was in Brighton a so-called coronary ambulance set up after the Belfast model, and I asked that she should dial 99 and request it. I went on in the meantime doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and eventually I heard a two-tone 
thank God it's here, the defibrillators those days were not small things like now. They were great big things. But I, an ambulance man came and I said, where's the defibrillator? We don't have the defibrillator. We have to report back to the medical office of health. He will decide whether to send it or not. Oh, my God. That ambulance man was Dusty Miller. He, at least now, I had somebody to help me with the CPR, and he was wonderful at it. Eventually, another two-tone, and this time the defibrillator did arrive. It was carried upstairs, two men carrying it upstairs, plugged into the wall, as it had to be in those days, turned on, and there was a huge explosion. It wasn't a tiny explosion, it was a huge explosion. This defibrillator had been kept uh, by the Medical Office of Health in a shed with water pouring on it, and they had great big capacitors at that time. This great explosion, and we knew then that this poor man was not going to be resuscitated. And I recall having a row with the Medical Office of Health, and he said to me, we shouldn't be rowing here in front of this the lady, which is quite right. Come and see me on Monday and we can discuss it. I went to see him and I told him that if I could have people like this Dusty Miller, I could train them to do everything that doctors did. No, he said, you can't. I've been in the Navy. I know about these things. You can teach people like this three tricks. Any more than that, they won't grasp. No, I said, I know I can. Well, he said, I don't think you can. But if you want to try, I'll support you. It was interesting that after that, he could not have been more helpful. And we did, and we trained people to be what we now call paramedics. And that was very successful locally. And that was uh, about 1970, I understand, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was in the early in the early 70s, the beginning of the 70s. Yeah, Dusty Miller did he become the first paramedic in in the UK? Yeah, uh, yes, D- Dusty would have been. Now. There were, we, we very quickly had permission to train six. And of those trained in 1970-71, all six sadly have now died. The last one died about four weeks ago, which was, uh, which was sad, the last of our six. But anyway, we had, we had what we now call paramedics. And things went well until there was a notification from the Department of Health that what we were doing with untrained, uh, with non-medical people using medical equipment like defibrillators was not proven and we should stop immediately. We had an order to stop. It was working well, but we were told we had to stop. And uh, we did actually pay the ambulance men two pounds a week extra for their skills. We were told we had to repay. Uh, they had to get them to repay the two pounds they'd been on. 
Was it was two pounds? It doesn't sound very much now, but was two pounds a lot back then? Or it wasn't very much. I'm probably about ten pounds now. I suppose I don't know, but it was anyway. Uh, the unions objected, so they didn't have to pay back their money. But we 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 couldn't use. We couldn't anymore. We had to stop what we were doing, and that was very sad. And the Department of Health organised a meeting. It was in Harrogate, actually, finally to put an end to this nonsense of people and non, non-doctors non using defibrillators and what have you. I wasn't even invited. There was one other place in the country in Avon, in, in the Bristol-Avon area, with a colleague of mine called Peter Basket, and he was had also trained people. So we were told that we had to stop. He had to stop. I had to stop. Neither of us was invited to this meeting in Harrogate. But luckily, the Royal College of Physicians was allowed to nominate somebody, and they nominated me. And the College of Anesthetists could nominate somebody, and they nominated my colleague Peter Basket. So we both got there. And when we were there in Harrogate, we had, we put forward our case pretty powerfully, and lo and behold, the Department of Health people said, we now realise we were wrong to stop you doing what you're doing, and you may in future um, teach these skills. It meant actually we teach, teach the skills not only in Brighton and in Avon, but everywhere in the country, and so that marked a, a very big uh, advance. Thank goodness for that, because I wouldn't be here if it hadn't happened. <laughs> so uh, we were able to uh, train everywhere, and, and that, that was uh, really very, 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 very good. Indeed. Was that essentially the, the official start of the paramedic role? Yes, we didn't call them paramedics, and we thought we were the first in the world. However, some damned man in Florida started about three or four weeks before we did. Only I didn't know at the time, but I can say we were the first in Europe to use defibrillators. By now, they were available in these automated defibrillators. So we were the first to, we were the first to to use automated defibrillators. The... um, Just before we go go on to the automated defibrillators, you, you painted a... An incredibly vivid picture of the the first or when you encountered Dusty at this this poor person's house, how you had to how it was a big piece of equipment and you had to plug it in and it exploded almost in a, a comical way if it hadn't been such a, a sad and serious situation. Can you sort of describe it a little bit more to us, what they were like and how much they cost and I don't remember how much they cost. They would have been, I think, about uh Four four foot long, by about two or three feet deep, and about one or eighteen inches wide. And they were on; uh, they had legs. They stood on, so they were really very, very big, very big gadgets. Now, having said that, a defibrillator had been invented in nineteen fifty six in America called the Mines Defibrillator. But it 
was uh, the man who invented it could never get anybody to take any interest in it. Although he invented it, it was never used in, in earnest. Oh, it was actually once, but it wasn't properly recorded. So that was uh, very unfortunate. A little bit later, in I must have been the 80s, a friend of mine who was medical officer for an airline then called British Caledonian, he came back from America, a trip in America. He'd been on the East Coast. And on the, well, I mean the East Coast, the far side anyway, whichever that is, he had discovered that there, there was a company there making a small defibrillator that one could carry quite easily, but nobody in America would use it. He actually brought one back to show me, and he brought me the handbook, and I said, if this thing does a quarter of what it says, then it's a wonderful instrument. And he said, I'll get the inventor to come over and talk to you. He flew over, came to dinner, leant back on one of my wife's antique chairs and smashed it, so she never forgave him for that. But indeed, we then said, yes, we want these defibrillators, and he sent six of them, and we started putting them on our ambulances, and we began to use automated defibrillators, and they proved, of course, to be a great success. So who was that person and what year was that roughly? Peter Chapman was the man who brought it over. The name of the inventor for the moment, I can't remember his name. Stupid. I think it was three o'clock in the morning. Has it gone on to be uh, one of the sort of well-known AED makers? Uh, no, not really. They, they never made a, a great deal, sadly though they were they were the first and can't think now what I was going to say about it. But we oh yes, we the Americans, after we published our results in the the Lancet, the Americans then began to use automated defibrillators and they published two years later, two or three years uh, later, about four years after us, roughly, their experience with the use of AEDs, claiming to be the first in the world ever to use them. Never mind the fact that we had a publication some years before that was ignored because the only country that mattered was, of course, America. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and it, it, these um, AEDs, they were automated as opposed to uh, manual, I guess. And I believe Frank Pantridge in Belfast, he had produced a portable defibrillator back in the 60s. And so how did they differ? Yes, you're quite right, and I should have said that. He had a small defibrillator, but it, it did require uh, you to do very much more. It wasn't, an, an, the, it, it was um, not quite as good as the one that we had. But mark you, the man who made Pantridge's defibrillator was very, very helpful to us as well. So, uh, yeah, the Pantridge defibrillator does get uh, should have a place in that story absolutely so so would you have to sort of diagnose an a, a arrhythmia that you could shock someone out of or would you just apply and give them a shock anyway with knowing that they were perhaps 
in a chance of being in a shockable rhythm and you just give it a go? Now, you did actually ask me if I'd said the most harm you can do with an AD is if you hit someone around the head with it. Did you really say this? Yes. You cannot do any harm with an automated defibrillator. You put them on the patient and the uh, it, the, uh, the automated defibrillator will examine the heart rhythm only if the patient has the suitable type of cardiac arrest. Will it, after due warning, give tell you to take the hands off and give a shock? They are in, they, nobody has ever been harmed by an automated defibrillator. I'll say that again. Nobody has ever been harmed by an automated defibrillator. But it is true that if um, you picked it up and hit somebody around the head, it then could damage somebody. <laughs> Especially with one of those older ones that were quite big by the sounds of it. But uh... They weren't automated. No. You had no way of doing the automated ones. You, you could use them in either automated no mode or you could use them in manual mode. In manual mode, you made all the decisions, but anybody could use them in automated mode. We have one downstairs here still, an automated defibrillator, and I'm sure my neighbours know that if I drop dead and, and I phone them beforehand to tell them I'm just about to drop dead, and they come in, they've got something here they could use. I don't know how easy it is to make a phone call when you're dead, but um, anyway, we, we've got one here. And of course, we've, there are many, many, many automated defibrillators. There too, of course, hangs a tale that it's hard to get one's thoughts sorted. But we did have, we put some defibrillators onto railway stations in the 70s. And we taught the transport police use them. So these people became, if you like, the first community first responders. And on Victoria Station, in a, a period of two or three years, they had five people survive to leave hospital alive. That was very good for, and that then we made efforts, continued to make efforts to make them much more widely available. And these efforts, like so many other efforts, were, were, were blocked. But finally, the, I did manage to get help from a man who lived in Sheffield who worked for the transport police. He was, in fact, on, the, on, on their board. And with his help, we made it more widely known. And the, the, the then Minister of Health got to hear of it. We use a thing called the grapevine. Have you ever heard of the grapevine? Absolutely. It is quite good. Yeah. Uh, and he got to hear of it. And he, I had a, a phone call from the House of Commons from his secretary saying, the minister has heard about uh, these devices and that you had them on um, a couple of stations. And he would like to send you, he's arranged to send to your home 300 of these defibrillators, and they'll be arriving next week. We have your address. Uh, I said, I don't want 300 defibrillators in our home. 
there wouldn't be room for anything else. Thank you very much. But I will be grateful for the offer and we'll find some way of dealing with it. What I did is I rang the Department of Health and said that there was a lady, I, I, I told them they had the offer of defibrillators, and there was a lady I knew, a nurse, who'd be happy to look after them. Interesting, they said. I then rang the nurse and said, I've spoken to the Department of Health, and um, they would be willing to get them if somebody would look after them. I, I told them that you would. I know you didn't know anything about it, but I thought you'd say yes. So she did say yes. And there was set up then the Department of Health scheme that she ran and over the course of several years. And we had, after we had 250 successes, the Department of Health actually held a party for survivors and about... Uh, about about 120 of them turned up in London to a great party they held, which was actually very nice. Um, eventually, of course, we had defibrillators on every station in the country and met many in many other places. The only problem is that people are a little bit reluctant to use them. I was going to ask you about that because there was a couple of questions, actually, I was going to ask you who who that lady was or the, the nurse that sort of started all this and took on your, your 300 defibs because she should get a name check. Can you remember who she was? Yes, and her name was Sean Davis, later Sean Brock, Brock, and she got an MBE. She was the youngest MBE ever apart from sporting personalities. Sean Davis, I-A-N, lady's name. Mm-hmm. Sean Block, is it Brock or Block now? Anyway, she's um, she did a, a most wonderful, wonderful job. Dusty Miller went on to be incredibly helpful travelling around teaching people. Sean did, and so, you know, all I had to do was sit down and get the credit riding on the shoulders of others and there were some uh, paramedics who became very very helpful indeed in training people these I'm still in touch with some of them the first six I've told you are all dead now but uh, some of the later ones are still very much alive and we do have a reunion every now and again there's a reunion in about a week's time of some of the original ones Mm-hmm. I was going to say what the other question I was going to ask was: you you met resistance to a certain degree of putting these uh, pieces of equipment in the hands of, although they were called ambulance drivers and became paramedics. Did you meet any resistance from the actual people you're at the transport police? You're asking to actually do CPR and use a defibrillator. How, how did people respond I, to to I that did, scenario? I did, you see, uh, because. When I went to the Victoria Station, I was put through to the chief of the transport police and um, his secretary said, what is, what, what, what's it about? I told her, I'm sorry, he's busy. And I had a similar phone call four or five times and realised he had no intention of speaking to me. It was then that I contacted this man in Sheffield who was on the board of the transport police and he came down. It was an interesting story, actually. He came down, we met at Victoria Station with a defibrillator and another colleague called called Tom Quinn, who deserves a mention. We met there, 
and then we went with the defibrillator to see the, this man, the man who was on the board of the transport police did insist that the boss should meet us. Now, he was actually ill that day, and that turned out to be true, but we saw his deputy. We went in, and an extraordinary thing happened. There we were, three of us. We'd taken the defibrillator to see this superintendent, whatever he was, the second in charge of the transport police. And I just began to talk when the man who'd come all the way from Sheffield, he clutched his chest and said, I've got pain in my chest. And he collapsed on the floor, dead. So that was incredible. I had the defibrillator. I handed it to this policeman. I said, look, he's dead. Use it. What, me? Yeah, use it. And he undid the lid and he found it spoke to him as they do. And he did what it said. And he got down on the floor. He undid this guy's shirt and what have you, put the pads on. I was just about to push the button. It was a live machine. When I said to the man on the floor, it's okay now. It's all done. You can get up. So the guy who was dead on the floor picked himself up and we uh, all laughed together because he wasn't dead at all. He just, we'd rehearsed this before. He just pretended to fall dead. <laughs> that was a bit of a cruel trick, wasn't it? Well, it, was quite, it worked very well because after that we got the defibrillator on all the stations. <laughs> that was brilliant. Now, there, there, there was, however, a sequel, which was not an entire... There are many ups and downs in all these stories, and there was a down that came. Some years later, I'd been travelling around the world for the uh, government, and I'd, I was no longer dealing with these matters. But some years later, I was on Victoria Station with an American called Carl Kern, and Carl said, this is where you, uh, you first put defibrillators. Well done, Carl. That's right. They're very clever. They're still here? I suppose so, I said. I don't know, because I've been doing other things. I've not got, been involved for some years. And anyway, we went up to a transport policeman on the station who was a 15-year-old. I don't know if he was 15. It's just that as you get older, policemen do look younger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, I said, have you got a defibrillator? He said, yeah, yeah yes. Uh, why, is there a problem? Uh, no, but I did put them here first. Yeah, would you like to see it? Yes. We went to a door. He unlocked it. We went in. He locked the door behind him. Another door he unlocked. And there was a defibrillator with a charge light on, but with about three inches of dust on top. And I said, but nobody's touched this for years. No, he said, we don't know what to do with it. The people who used it originally are not here anymore, and we're not allowed to touch it. So, again, we had to go through that rigmarole again of persuading the transport police, which we we did, because now we had powerful allies on our side, that they were going to use um, they were going to use defibrillators. So, you know, ups and downs, uh, lots of ups and downs. But there we are. Uh, there were, in the end, mostly ups. The biggest down now is that people are afraid to use them. 
there are a couple of problems. One is a dreadful one that some boxes are in outside are locked and you have to ring a number to get the number to unlock it. And that is an absolute disgrace because that takes time. But um, most luckily aren't locked and people can go and take a defibrillator off the wall. We had, we, you know, we put 1,500 out. Of what, we put 300 out, eventually 1,500 out, and only three of them ever got, ever got stolen. And at least one we did get back. So, but people are afraid to use them. And even though they're, they're, they'll talk to people, you know, they, they won't even open them. This is a problem. A colleague in the South Central area found that when pe people witnessed a cardiac arrest, only 4% of people would use a defibrillator even if they had one available. I think it's got to be better than that now, luckily. How, if you're faced with that problem, how would you make it better? Yeah, it's a big public education piece, isn't there, that needs to be undertaken, and I guess... What sort of, what sort of public education? Well... You're not doing very well so far. <laughs> to to let people know that, that you can't cause any harm, apart from if you bash someone around the head with it, as someone once said. Uh, how do let people know? Well, well, they're starting next year, aren't they, with this being part of the curriculum in, in England, at least, and it needs to be throughout the rest of the UK as well. But oh, uh, that's the point. So people did actually, it, 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 it was made part of the curriculum. You say it's going to be. It, it was. Did it stop being part of the, Maybe it did stop being part of the curriculum, but it was part of the curriculum, and children you were taught to use automated defibrillators and what's more any school could get some model ones to teach on from the British Heart Foundation for free to aid in the teaching and they could keep them so school children were taught and that did lead to there being more successes from cardiac arrest but there we are. If you tell me it's going to be, it must be that it dropped out of the curriculum at some stage, and I'm afraid I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's going to be part of the curriculum from next September that all well, uh, well, year 10s, I think that is, will we talk? Uh, how, how old are they? Uh, year 10, oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> even though my sons have just gone through that, I can't think, probably about 13 or 14, something like that. Fine. Well, you know, it was part of the curriculum, so it must have gone out of the curriculum. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. no, I didn't know it was a, a part of the curriculum, but it, it certainly was earlier this year in January, I think, that the Department of Health announced that it would be part. But although it, it was just an announcement to say we want it part of the curriculum, I don't think they've necessarily put any uh, real thought or money behind it. So I think it's going to be left to... A certain organisations, maybe the British Heart Foundation, and certainly someone we both know, Professor Toff's organisation, Heartwise, and charities like Sad UK to sort of. I mean, he he has done. He did a great deal in where was it in um, Leicestershire, yeah. And he he's he's taking it on and essentially a franchise his model into Essex as well, and that's just been started. Yes, I did read that, and then. 
in some countries, Copenhagen is a, a, a guy there in Copenhagen who actually decided that defibrillators should be widely available. It's always easy to get the money. You've got the money. But in Copenhagen, they were put, not only put in a lot of public places, every taxi had one, well, still has one. So it just called for a taxi if you want a defibrillator. Anyway, they increased the number of survivals in Copenhagen over a period of about 18 months, tenfold. That's incredible. Copenhagen has the, I think, probably the best survival now in Europe. One of the things we need is time. We need to get there quickly. You did ask me at one time what myths, what untruths were there around. One myth is that the chance of a successful defibrillation falls by 10% every minute. If you look that up, you'll find another reference, early reference. And look that up, you'll find an early reference. And look that up and you'll find an early... I spent about a day in a public library going through and eventually found the original uh, reference and it was all done on computer analysis. It wasn't even real fact. It was done on a computer analysis, which people are not aware of. The best study done for real showed over 20% per minute. So it's very important to be there on time. Hence the need for community first responders. Because you've got to get people there within, within four or five minutes. And the trouble is, that in this country, most ambulance services do not know how to use community first responders to the best effect. And that is where we could make a huge impact. Some services are better than others and have better results, but uh, by and large, they don't do nearly as well as they should, simply because community first responders, they need to be alerted, they need to have a good system. There's a good system now available. What's it called? Good SAM, the Good SAM app. If that was used properly, it could be very much better and people could be alerted to, to where the cardiac arrest was and get there much more, much more quickly. So there we are. That's still, still a hurdle that's only been partly crossed. How are, how are CFRs? Um, notified at the moment than if they don't use good SAM in their area? How are they notified? Oh, it, it all depends on the service. But there's this chap, Chamberlain, has a saying that a service must n notify a first responder within 30 seconds of alerting the ambulance, preferably even before. But very, very few services do that. The call takers, people who are organising this, just don't seem to realise the importance of it. It's a matter of, of education, really, of getting through to the ambulance service. Now, the ambulance service is improving. Let me say that immediately. Uh, for many years, our ambulance service was really didn't seem to be interested in this at all. Now we have people who do understand, are interested, and things are steadily improving, and survival rates are going up. 
another problem was that the um, data handling in many areas was terrible, so the data simply weren't reliable. And now there is also um, electronic method of recording. In some areas only hasn't started long, so we're going to see much better data, and that will be very helpful. Mm-hmm. I guess when we start seeing the disparities between the different areas across the country and when we find out, say, the the ones where uh, they've got a good success rate are using CFRs, it's going to put pressure on the ones with not such good success rates and who perhaps aren't using CFRs to actually use them in, in a more in a more beneficial way. Well, we, we have paramedics and we have ordinary technicians asking now, who has the who achieves more success in the studies that have been done so far, the paramedics or technicians? I don't know. What do you mean by a technician? A technician is somebody who's just had limited training and hasn't all the training of drug administration and all the other things that paramedics have. I guess it depends on who gets there first. No, no. It, uh, well, it, it, some some ambulances have only technicians. Oh, okay. I would imagine it's the paramedics and people. I think I've seen studies, and actually, the person who saved me was a paramedic who had um, attempted and succeeded in quite a few uh, resuscitation attempts. Yes. Well, the answer in the studies that have been done is that technicians do better. The reason being that paramedics attempt to do things that are not necessary, such as putting a a tube down through the gullet, you know, and that takes time, whereas people who aren't that trained just go straight and do the thing that's important, which is the defibrillation. Now, again, I'm talking about uh, things that are partly in the past. This has been a problem. It's now getting much, much better. Now uh, it is you defibrillate as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the moment, we, we say, or there's common uh, stat says about one in 10 or less than one in 10, I think it's in the high eight, 9%, something like that, of survival rate for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What, where do you think we can actually get it to and how can we achieve that? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the survival rate at the moment across the country as an average is about 8 or 9% of cases. I don't know what you're talking about. Will you just let me explain why I don't know what you're talking about? Yeah, sure. Because if you're going to have data like that, you've got to start with a common type number. The number you should start with is the number of cardiac arrests that you are actually, that you actually uh, attend, that a service attends, the number of cardiac arrests they attend. Now, some services, they actually, you know, data uh, is very often fake data, and some services don't do it that way. They only will take it if they arrive within a certain time or arrive if the patient had CPR, or all sorts of things. If you take all cases of cardiac arrest, then the data um, are actually not good at all. But that's what we should have. 
all the data should be got in the same way, and it should be all cases of cardiac arrest where the where we have a response from. Is there not is there not a unified or codified method of recording this data then? Well, there hasn't been in the past. Whether I think again, I'm a little bit behind by not being as involved as I was, but that was a great a great problem. There was an, another point, and how you judge success is another thing that's important. Judge success by getting return of spontaneous circulation. That is judged success by leaving the hospital alive with a, a good brain function, and that's a very different figure. So you've always got to look at what figures people are talking about, and there's still no really unified system. Well, there is an attempt; it's gradually being introduced, but we have suffered because there has not been this unified system. And there's another problem, that ambulances aren't available. There aren't enough ambulances. Why aren't there enough ambulances? I'm asking you, why aren't there enough ambulances? I have no idea. I imagine part of it is because of structures within the NHS and procedures and protocols they have for admitting patients. I know we quite often see on the TV where there's queues of ambulances, particularly in over the winter where they're they're waiting to discharge on um uh, yeah, dis- discharge from the ambulance to the hospital, but they are they're not allowed to do so because of beds and things like that. But I I re- don't really know the, the inner workings of the NHS. I'm really, really sorry that you gave that answer because, unfortunately, you're right. And I really don't like people getting right answers when I ask questions. (laughs) Uh, the, uh, The ambulances go to hospital, any hospital you see them, all they're waiting to, to offload and waiting to get away, and they can't often because the hospitals don't understand or because uh, they're, they're too busy or because they can't get patients out of be- out of their beds to discharge them for various reasons. And it needs me as dictator to put this right. <laughs> I volunteered to be dictator, but I've not been taken on. <laughs> because, uh, you know, getting, getting ambulances to and from the hospital quickly is incredibly important. It's very frustrating for our ambulance crews. We kept hanging around when there were urgent things going on. Not helped by the public, of course. We had a case recently of a lady who dialed 999. She dialed 999 to get help to put her husband's slippers on. (laughs) That sort of thing doesn't help time because... Now, at least ambulances are forced to try and ask a little bit more about why the 999 call was made. Once upon a time, they just 999 called, they would go, but the public didn't use the system properly. Mm-hmm. There's a 111 system, and again, that's a bit flawed. It doesn't always pick out the urgent cases quickly enough. You you mentioned a, a little while ago about in Denmark how they have been putting AEDs everywhere. I just wanted to touch on your sort of work 
with people in the UK and in Europe and further afield because you were at the inception of some of these organisations, weren't you, with the the Resuscitation Council and the, the European Resuscitation Council and... Yes, yes. The, there's a figure here who is very important whom I, I haven't mentioned. There is a man whose company sells uh, models and for defibrillation called Laerdal. You may have heard of Laerdal. I have. L-A-E-R. Well, Tora Laerdal is the boss man and a more wonderful person it would be hard to find. He has the Laerdal Foundation. He makes no money himself. He pays himself a very modest salary. I've visited his home. It's a very modest home. He drives a very inexpensive car um, because all the money for the foundation that's made goes to improve survival, whether it be from cardiac arrest or providing midwives in parts of the world that don't have midwives, he's done an enormous amount. Tora Lairdal did get together a meeting many years ago, I can't remember when it was, a very long time ago, of people that he thought were interested in resuscitation. And from there, we arranged to meet again in the States. And there's also a meeting in Brighton, of people interested in resuscitation. So this is how these movements first got going. And the um, joint resuscitation, what am I talking about? The World world Organization uh, got going, and then we had the European Resuscitation Council set up and again, there were some influential people in in that. I was only a little part of it. And therefore, after that, there was the Resuscitation Council UK. And again, I was just a wee part of it, other important people. So, you know, the whole list of names, one could list of people who played a huge role in bringing the, these um, things to the public, into the public domain. What what are the aims of these organisations to maybe to people who don't know that name of Resuscitation Council or, or even the European? Or, or, or the the aim is to make resuscitation widely available. And do you think they've succeeded? Well, they're they're doing a lot of good work in teaching teaching it, yes, and making available equipment and teaching it. Surely, sure, yes, they are. And how far do you think they can actually go? What will be success well as i say the most important thing is teaching in the schools and that now you know, i think probably say started in leicestershire in this country but no that that is that is going well and again we have to now it's taught in schools people won't be afraid to use them things should go on getting better do you, do you think there's anything to be done for the people who do CPR, who are just a lay person, because I know from personal experience and other people that I've met who've done CPR, it can be, uh, shall we say, a traumatic experience. I know probably if you're standing next to someone who'd had a cardiac arrest and you didn't do anything about it, it would still be a traumatic experience, especially if it was a uh, a loved one. It would be a trauma in a different kind of way. But do you think 
we need. Yes, not enough attention is paid to that. And the true is same of ambulance personnel, paramedics. If they are involved in resuscitation and it isn't successful, not enough is done because they often feel misplaced guilt. And I know that from you know, being involved in cases, they feel misplaced guilt. And that is really, really bad. So there are an awful lot to be, to be done in that way. And there's another big problem that in doing resuscitation, if somebody's had a cardiac arrest for a while, the body becomes resistant to being resuscitated, as it were. And there need to be better, there need to be ways, this hasn't really been, been mastered yet, of making the heart much more liable, much more able to respond, not just electrically, but to respond, respond uh, to get its contractions back. Because at the moment, very often, the heart won't respond in the way it wants to for biochemical reasons. And we haven't got a good way of, of we're still lacking good ways of coping properly with that problem. Mm-hmm. The 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 whole concept of actually bringing someone back from, if I use air quotes, the dead, I don't know whether people are really classed as the dead when they're in that state by a, a medical person such as yourself. Do you think that we we're, we're as a species aren't really designed to be turned off and on again, as it were, like a computer? Do, do you think that we've really understood the ramifications of, of that process yet? Well, no, and that's what I'm saying. I, I mean, I I went to uh, a club I belong to, Rotary, the Probus, Probus Club, and I went to have lunch and somebody said to me, oh, Stan's tripped up. Oh, no, let me tell the story from the beginning. I went there and I had persuaded this club to buy a defibrillator, an automated defibrillator. And after much persuasion, they bought one. And I went this particular day and the lady manager said to me, we've had this device six weeks and we've never even used it. And I said, pointing to the fire extinguisher, have you used that in the last six weeks? And she said, no, that's, uh, that's a very good point. I, 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 we haven't. Um, anyway, I then went to the dining room and somebody said, oh, Stan's just tripped up. And I looked and I said, no, 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 Stan's dead. Um, get the defibrillator. The lady rushed along saying, I'm going to be very careful what I say next next time. And we used the defibrillator and Stan was actually, after a, a very few minutes, was actually moving and made a perfectly good recovery. And I meet him at Probus every time I go. He's actually in perfectly good health. He's actually fine. So, you know, that's just the reluctance sometimes of people to understand and to use them when they should. What, what I was sort of getting at is though the, the the longer someone's down, the more perhaps neurological and psychological impact it's going to have on them, on the survivor. Um, yes, that, 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 that is absolutely true. But the again, that there are different situations. If people drown, then the, the head gets a bit cold and they have they have longer. If they get buried in, in the snow, there have been some remarkable... There's one lady who actually was head buried in the snow in Norway 
of 45 minutes and she survived and in fact I got to know her 45 minutes with her head buried in snow and and that was the hypothermia protected her, her brain so there are ways of protecting the the brain but are there ways of protecting it after the event the um, damage to the brain and indeed to the heart most of the damage is done not by the period of cardiac arrest but when the blood flow returns it is the actual return of blood that causes the damage so okay let's stop that then because the bad damage is done by the return of blood flow it's after that's when the damage occurs we've got to protect the brain protect the heart from that thing that, that, that the chemical processes that cause the cell death when it gets its oxygen supply back i guess there's a big piece of science to understand how we can get the blood flow back into it the brain and the body without actually doing any damage then interestingly it can be done in some situations and it can be done in experimental animals but in man it is being very resistant it's learning how to prevent the return of oxygen you're supplying from actually polishing them off instead of bringing them back <laughs> and that's a very important point but it gives rise to hope because i'm sure that somebody eventually will find a way of doing it there are some there are some suggestions that haven't been properly explored yet and i wish they would but they haven't been anyway yeah okay like i say what, what excites you most about the future of resuscitation well that is that that's that's it really finding a way that will stop the returning oxygen causing irreversible damage so if we could find out a solution to that we can essentially put people into stasis are you saying we can what put people into stasis you know this dream of being able to yeah, yeah. Uh, freeze a man so they can wake up again in a hundred years time or something like that yeah yeah i i don't recommend that and i don't want to be frozen thank you <laughs> well you never know what you could be doing in another hundred years time um yes but i'm i'm nearly a hundred years old so i look back nearly that time not quite uh-huh Talking about looking back, you know, what's it been like for you being a cardiologist? Has it has it met your expectation, or is it what would, what's been different to how you thought when you were when you're that four four year old boy and you wanted to become a doctor? Has being a doctor met your expectations? And then in the cardiology world, I imagine that you've seen huge changes. I've I've loved it, um, but when I was a cardiologist that there was um, quite a lot to know and we didn't have quite enough time to know it all but really you know when I was an active cardiologist I could say I know most of what there is to know that's important but now there's so much new has been discovered particularly in, in terms of molecular structure and the genomics um, that no one person can know all any any major part of what there is to know so cardiologists more perhaps than any any other specialty have become specialists in one little bit of the speci speciality 
because they can't embrace it all. It's far, far too much. So there are people who specialize in this, people who specialize in that. One of the problems is if you're a patient and you set to see a cardiologist, it'd be much better to go and see a cardiologist who specializes on the right bit for you. But, you know, it's not always possible to, 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 to know that. Mm-hmm. Well, I totally agree that the more we find out about these uh, parts of the body and the cell and the genome, the, the more more avenues we open up to sort of go down. Yes, quite. It's true. Talking about your career, what, what, what has kept you working long past the age that many retire at? Well, I've retired several times. Um, um, retired from this, that and the other. I re- retired first from cardiology in the hospital and then went off for the um, government doing other work and so on. I've, I, I'm just interested. I, I, I don't do very much now. What do I do? Okay, I, I look at transmitted electrocardiograms every day because the ambulance service transmits electrocardiograms to the hospital. And I, I look at all those. I don't look at all of them. I look at half of them every day, which is about an hour's work, to pick out faults in equipment that probably about two or three a week where there's, I detect that the equipment isn't working as it should. Um, these complicated things do misbehave, and paramedics sometimes, who've got lots to do, don't always realise that there is something wrong with the, with the machine. And I'm probably better than m- most people at spotting there's something wrong. But also, I a bit of cardiology, I do lecture, of course, in the ambulance service. I do a bit of lecturing in the um, medical school. I'll be giving quite a, several lectures in the beginning of January, for example. So I'm so active there. Uh, I think it's partly because I like the sound of my own voice, you know. If, if one's a bit um, lacks modesty, you do like the sound of your own voice. <laughs> And also, I like to sort of feel boss, you know, it's uh, mm-hmm. good, really. So I'm, I'm, you'll realise I am really a pretty bad guy. <laughs> you sound terrible, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I joined the army, my commanding officer I met on the first day, he said to me, if you want to get on in this world, you have to learn to be difficult. You have to be learned to be difficult. And I said, sir, and I saluted, and I've been difficult ever since. <laughs> Would you say that's the greatest lesson that you've ever learned then? I think it's the greatest lesson I've ever learned, how to be difficult. <laughs> Teach my terror, and you know, you know how it goes. And what, what do you think was the most helpful thing in making it possible to do what you've done? It... What was the most helpful thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, being born? Born. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, you've, you seem to have, uh, well, you have achieved uh, a lot in your life. And, you know, you, you've overcome a lot of hurdles in your earlier life. And some of the, you've, you've had some luck along the way as well, I suppose. I just wondered what, what you felt was the most helpful 
it, it, was it that teacher back back in the day who recognised your dyslexia, or was it? Well, that was certainly that was certainly important. Because I wouldn't I wouldn't have um, qualified, would I, without uh, without, without that? Um, but, so if you hadn't if you hadn't qualified, what what would an alternative career would you have liked to have followed? I haven't the remotest idea. I haven't the remotest idea. What about, um, I think, what about selling wine? I like a wee drop of wine, you know. Um, better than a wee drop of wine, I like a lot of wine. <laughs> well, it's funny, I, I, I read a, an article earlier and it was about something you had said and the headline was about not drinking wine anymore because it damages your heart and it was it wasn't what you had said it was the journalist had totally taken uh, I think you had said that people should reduce their alcohol intake as well as a number of other things to reduce their hypertension I think it was and the the journalist had totally taken your con your what you had said out of context I'm sure I would have done because uh, I do believe that there should be a sensible limit on what one drinks. Wine, for example, by and large, is good for the heart, but wine does other complicated things. And wine, the late, what was she called? The uh, chief, the chief lady, do uh, lady doctor, advising the government. What she was called. But she was against any alcohol because, in general, it did more harm than good. But I think a little bit of what you what you like does you good, and I think you should um, make sure you limit it appropriately. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. What is the hardest thing that you've ever done? What was the hardest thing I've ever done? I, I I can't quite think what the hardest thing was I've ever done. I've, I've never climbed Mount Everest. Hardest thing, yes, I think one of the hardest thing I've ever done was um, neglecting the family because when I was we had a young family, I would get up and. Be, I, I used to go and go for a run, I'd get up at five o'clock and go for a run, but I'd then be in the hospital before eight, and by the time I finished all my work, I'd be home after ten, and the children were always, they weren't up when I went out, and they weren't, they were back in bed when I came home, so I met the family on Sunday afternoons, because I worked Sunday mornings, and that was the certainly the hardest thing because I did worry at the time, and I found that very hard, that clash between what was needed professionally and what was right for the family. I think I had the wrong, uh, the wrong priority there. I think the balance was wrong. Yep, I've got sitting here on my desk a massive tome called Cardiac Arrest, The Science and Practice of Resuscitation Medicine, which is... Uh, edited by your good self amongst a number of your colleagues. And and in it, you have a, a dedication to your wife. And it says, to my wife, Jennifer, who continues to be incredibly tolerant of a husband who is forever ensconced in his study and who offers no help with the washing up. Doesn't sound like things have changed. No, all of that is true. <laughs> have your washing up skills got any better? Um, what's washing up mean? 
<laughs> Surely you have to scrub up before you're doing an operation or something. You... I don't do any of that these days. <laughs> and the only operation I ever, I ever did really was putting in pacemakers. <laughs> yeah, never a surgeon. Huh. Okay, I guess we're, we're sort of coming to the end, and I just wanted to know what what have been. I think you probably already told us most of them, but what have been the the highlights of your career so far? That is, and what's the achievement that you're most proud of? I think probably I have to say the introduction of of what we now call paramedics. I think that was. Uh, probably the thing that I feel most pleased about. But, you know, as with everything else, it was only a bit me, and my job is just to pick up the credit, what other people do, as it were. But uh, so that would probably probably be the thing that I feel most pleased about. So anything else? Again, you know, promoting the use of automated defibrillators, and with that, giving lay people, getting lay people to use them. was an interesting little bit of a history of resuscitation, which most people don't know about. Where was the first resuscitation ambulance? We've talked about Belfast, but there was another one afterward. Where was the first one without, first one without any doctor? Where was the first ambulance? I'm guessing it was in Brighton. Um, I'm really pleased to say that uh, you said that because I can say it wrong. <laughs> it, it was in Dublin. All oh, right. There was uh, a man in Dublin who went to a political meeting, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, one of these, forgot which it was. He went there with his his friend was speaking, his friend really got very excited, waving his arms around as he was speaking, getting very excited, and he really got carried away, and so excited that he fell dead and got carried away. And this friend of his was extremely upset by this and went to the Irish Heart Foundation to say, what could he have done? And they said, well, there have just recently been introduced uh, a type of small defibrillator if you'd had one there, you might have saved him. So he bought an ambulance himself. He did own a garage. He bought an ambulance and bought a defibrillator. And he actually told GPs to ring him when they, if they had, had a cardiac arrest. And over the space of about two or three years, he did have several uh, save several people. When he died, his son didn't take it over, so it all it all fell apart, and that was the end of that. And what, what was that chap's name? Do you know? Yeah, I, 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 of course I know. We well, don't afraid to tell you, do? You? <laughs> so, so was he he the first paramedic? Do you think? Well, not the first paramedic. He was. You could say he was the non-doctor to offer defibrillation facilities. That guy, that's where the first really was, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's recorded, well, of course, the term paramedic had not been invented then, but um, it's a bit pity I can't remember 
his name. No, I can't. I can, I, I can find out now, but tell you later. Okay, no worries. So, what what do you think other people you have worked with would say with would say about you? I think they'd say, "What a difficult guy." Don't you think? I've got no idea. I've never worked with you. I've had a, a incredibly interesting conversation with you. I, I think people would uh, think I was terribly difficult. But you you said earlier that being difficult was one of the greatest lessons that you've learned. Yes, it was, yes, that's right. I did actually fall in our driveway a, a few weeks ago, and I my head hit the edge of some brickwork and I had a very nasty gash and blood pouring down the, the street. I'm sorry to hear that. In, in gallons. I do exaggerate. I like exaggerating. People from across the road saw this and they rang an ambulance. An ambulance turned up and the paramedic there, lady paramedic, when she saw me, she said she went pale. Sweat broke out, Doctor Chamberlain, <laughs> because I had, she had suffered, training by terror. Poor thing. Anyway, she was very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, sort of, my final question to you was: What advice would you give to anyone else wishing to achieve similar things to that you've achieved in their career? Well, one of the problems now is that the bureaucracy around all these things is so great that I think I might say uh, run a mile because I, I, do, I do worry, and I worry when I'm teaching medical students what they're getting into because it's such... In, in my day, the health service was run by doctors, was effectively run by doctors for the sake of patients. It's fair to say that now it is run by managers and at least in part for the sake of money. And, you know, this brings a completely different feel to it. I feel that even many cardiologists now are themselves very money conscious in the way that we never were in the old days. So things have changed. And I often say to my friends, and they agree with me, that we had the best of times. Because we did, because we, had, we could actually do things that were effective, but under the, the very good conditions that don't exist anymore. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's a happy note to finish off with. <laughs> Well, it's been an incredible journey through the history of resuscitation and cardiology of the, your career the last 60, 70 years and fascinating stuff. And thank you for relaying your anecdotes and the information and your part in, in my survival and many other people's survival. And I, I really thank you for everything that you've done. And it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. So thank you very much. You didn't really ask me about how I got interested in resuscitation, did you? God, sorry. God, how did you get interested in it? Well, year 1966, we already knew about, there had already been well described since the 18th century, actually. So many things have been 
discovered and forgotten, discovered and forgotten. That's one of the one of the things about science, discovery, forgetting and rediscovery. And, you know, the artificial ventilation, 18th century. But by 1966, we knew uh, about that chest compressions could be useful in some circumstances. But the whole thing of chest compression and ventilation, it had not been put together in a, a way that we now know of as CPR. And that was described in a, a, a very important paper, an American paper. And people really began to take seriously for the first time the possibility of resuscitating people, 1966. I um, called, I was a registrar at, at that senior registrar, uh, or was I yeah, senior registrar at Barts, and I, I called a meeting to teach people this new art of cardiothoracic resuscitation. And uh, I invited one consultant that I thought would be very interested. He was an anaesthetist, a very nice man, and he came along too. And I described it, and he said, I said where people should put their hands and what they should do. He said, would you like to just lie down, and I'll just show people what you've been telling us. I lay down. He put his hands on my chest, gave one. Then before I could do any, a second shove, I heard my the crack, crack, crack of the ribs, my ribs cracking. Actually, it was the the joint, I think, between the uh, sternum and, and the ribs, probably mostly. But I did have some broken ribs. And I had the six or eight most uncomfortable weeks when, first of all, breathing and later coughing or sneezing were incredibly uncomfortable. So that was my introduction to resuscitation. It, <laughs> it came, I learned with pain. <laughs> Is that the best way to learn? You said you'd like being difficult. <laughs> I don't know, but I learned with pain. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the son of this man, very big man, now uh, sometimes reads the news on, I think it's ITV news. But uh, anyway, there we are. So sometimes learning is hard. Sometimes learning is painful. <laughs> so that's a brilliant note to end in. And I, as I just want to say again, thank you very much for spending time uh, relaying all your tales for us. They've been very interesting and very humorous as well. And loved, loved hearing it all. So thank you very much. Okay, but don't go away yet because you've got 12 more seconds to make it two hours. <laughs> well, we'll have to edit a little bit out anyway, so it's not going to be quite two hours. But if you'd like to sing a song or something like that, have you got any other talents yeah, that you I've could... You've uh... got two hours. Uh, two hours of your time, sir. You're not going to charge me, I hope. <laughs> the bluebirds White cliffs of Dover. It doesn't seem very well. Now I'll give it up. Okay. <laughs> right. all, all the very best, sir. <laughs>